Good morning. Before I forget, if you did not get one of the communion kits uh, and you are able to take communion, you're more than welcome to move to the back and grab one now or at any point during the service. If you have your Bible, I invite you to turn to the Gospel of Mark. Our time together this morning will be greatly helped by you following along in a copy of God's inerrant and inspired word, especially because this sermon will be different than what we are used to. We study, I preach expositionally through books of the Bible. What that means is we think the healthiest way to study the Bible is verse by verse, paragraph by paragraph, chapter by chapter through books of the Bible because it focuses our attention on God's Word rather than the ideas of men, and it constrains our application of the text because it forces us to focus on each passage in its context. We're constantly asking questions. Why is this placed here? How does it relate to what went before it? How does it relate to what went right after it? That's the way that we regularly study the Bible as a congregation on Sunday mornings. That's how we study the Bible as a congregation on Wednesday nights in our midweek Bible study, moving verse by verse through books of the Bible. But today, we're going to study an entire book of the Bible, the gospel according to Mark, in one sitting as we remind ourselves of some key points and try to distill some relevant application for ourselves after 19 months of study. And that means that we're going to be moving around a lot through the whole gospel of Mark right here in this book of the Bible. So I'm going to ask you to have a Bible open now, keep a Bible open throughout our time together. You will find our time not only much more enjoyable, but you'll learn more. And if you don't have a Bible with you, you should be able to find a Bible underneath the seat in front of you or near you. Just feel free to take one of those home with you if you don't have a Bible that you can call your own. We're going to end our series at the beginning, so you can just look in chapter 1, verse 1. Mark writes, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he speaks to us with the same authority as if Jesus Christ himself were here speaking to us today. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Let's pray. Father, we do pray and ask that you would help us as we turn our attention to your word. Your word is true. We pray that you would write its eternal truths on our hearts this morning. Father, we know that the enemy would long to snatch the good word that we are hearing and studying today. We pray that you would help us to focus our minds on this truth. And we ask all of this in the name of Jesus, the Christ of God. And all the people of Christ Church Westchester said, amen. I have a growing stack of books in my life that I started but never finished. Some books are books that I wish that I had more time with. Others are books that I'm really sorry that I started. Because I have one of these obsessive compulsive desires to finish every book I start, no matter how awful I might find the book to be. So if you can get me reading it, I feel that I must finish the book. But one of the things I've learned in all of my reading, probably like many of the readers in the room, is that you'll never really be able to understand a book or what an author meant by a book if you do not read that book and study that book in its entirety. Not the abridged version, but the full version. 
which is why it takes so long to read some of the great books of history, or they just occupy our shelves and we never get to them. Only then, when you actually finish the book, can you know why the author wrote the book. Why did they record things in the book the way that they did? What was their point? What hope did they have when you would pick it up and read it? Why did they think it was relevant in their time and it might be enduring for all time? That's true for books outside of the Bible, and that's true for the Bible. It is the reason that we're revisiting Mark's gospel again today. And I pray that the Lord would be merciful to drive its meaning deep into our hearts. Mark's gospel can be broken down into three sections. Those three sections, as many of you are familiar with at this point, give us three questions that once again are going to frame our study of this gospel. Who is Jesus? Chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 30. What does Jesus expect from those who follow him? Chapter 8, verse 31 through chapter 10, verse 52. And why did Jesus have to die? Chapter 11, verse 1 to chapter 16, verse 8. First, who is Jesus? Look again in Mark chapter 1, verse 1. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark's gospel is for readers and hearers, not the characters in the story. So he helps the readers and the hearers from the very beginning of his gospel. The first sentence tells us what and who the entire book is about. The beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. Mark is about the gospel. The good news of God's Son taking on flesh to dwell among us so that he might live the life that we never could in complete obedience to all of God's law and be delivered up as a substitute for our sins on the cross. Mark's gospel is about the great exchange, the Savior standing in place of the sinner. Mark's gospel is about redemption. Those who will die and should go to hell can, by repentance from sin and belief in Jesus, be those who live forever and go to heaven. Happy are the people who have realized by faith and experience in their own lives that I was blind, but now I see. Though I was dead, yet now I live. Mark's gospel is about reversal, a reversal of fortunes. The prestigious and the powerful are made last, while the overwhelmed and the overlooked are made first. The arrogant and the haughty are brought down, while the humble and lowly are raised up. It's about hope. The hope of an entire new world. A world without sin and without suffering. A world without sickness and without sadness. A world of light and life a world of happiness and holiness, a world of meaning and purpose, of justice and righteousness, of compassion and forbearance. It's about real life, a real world that God's real people will really live in. It's about love, a love that is manifested in faithfulness. 
And if you listened carefully and read closely, then you notice that the only person in Mark's gospel who proves to be faithful in the end is Jesus. The gospel is not just good news. The gospel is the good news. It is the best news anyone could ever hear. It is the best news that you will ever hear. So Mark fronts it in his gospel in verse 1, and we find it again by verse 15 on the lips of Jesus himself. Perhaps you've never noticed that the very first words that Jesus speaks in the gospel are the gospel themselves. Look at Mark chapter 1, verse 15. The time is fulfilled. We don't need to look anymore. We don't need to look for anyone else because we won't find anyone else, and we won't find it anywhere else. And the kingdom of God is at hand. The reign of God and the realm of God have come close to people in the person of Jesus Christ. Repent and believe in the gospel. All we have to do is turn away from our sins and trust in this good news. And we can live with God in his realm where he reigns. If you're not a Christian here this morning, this is what Christians understand to be the core teaching of the Bible. This is why we gather on Sundays. This is why we preach the gospel to each other. This is why we're preaching the gospel to you. Good news of God doing something for people that they could never do for themselves. The world is telling you to do something for yourself, to make something of yourself to become something for yourself. Christianity is telling us that you will never be able to do anything good enough for yourself to save yourself. That the best thing that you could ever do is to turn to God in faith because the only thing you are capable of earning with your life is hell. From Genesis to Revelation, the entire teaching of the Bible is telling us this good news. Adam and Eve sinned. But God promised that he would send forth one born of the woman to crush the seed of the serpent, or the, the head of the serpent. Noah sinned, but God promised that he would never again destroy the earth and everyone who dwells in it. Abraham sinned, but God promised him an heir and an inheritance anyway. Moses sinned, but God promised to send a prophet greater than Moses in his place. David sinned. But God promised him a forever king to sit upon his throne. The gospel of Jesus Christ is the good news of God's forever king arriving in the person of Jesus Christ. All of God's promises, everything the Old Testament looks forward to, finds its ultimate and final fulfillment in the person of Jesus Christ. As our children age in our home, one of the things that I miss the most is reading, or at least having an excuse to read, their kids' Bible aloud. In Sally Lloyd-Jones' book, The Jesus Storybook Bible, we find the following paragraph. The Bible is most of all a story. It's an adventure story about a young hero who comes from a far country to win back his lost treasure. It's a love story about a brave prince who leaves his palace, his throne, everything, to rescue the one that he loves. It's like the most wonderful of fairy tales that has come true in real life. You see, because the best thing about this story is that it's true. 
There are lots of stories in the Bible, but all the stories are telling one big story. The story of how God loves his children and comes to rescue them. It takes the whole Bible to tell this story. And at the center of the story, there is a baby. Every story in the Bible whispers his name. He is like the missing piece in a puzzle, the piece that makes all of the other pieces fit together. And suddenly, you can finally see the beautiful picture. And some of us have become so familiar with the Bible and the gospel story that we have ceased to be astonished at how absolutely amazing and stunning that it is. That God would so love the world that he would send his son to die in the place of sinful people. Jesus' arrival in the gospel of Mark is the good news that Mark announces. And who is Jesus? Verse 1. The Christ, the Son of God. We're told that in the first sentence, and after 19 months of studying this book of the Bible, most of you are likely aware of that by now, and probably tired of hearing it to some degree. But I wonder, did you notice that it actually took the entire gospel of Mark to, uh, to flesh that point out? Turn with me to chapter 8. At the at the conclusion of Mark part 1, we find the confession, Jesus is the Christ, on the lips of Peter, a Jew in Caesarea Philippi. Mark chapter 8, verse 27. And Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? Now, if you're not familiar with Caesarea Philippi, it's a Gentile part of the country, and where Jesus was, there would have been a large mountain behind him with a lot of little cutouts in the side of the mountain where all sorts of different idols and statues would have been. And with that behind him, where all of these idols and statues would have been, Jesus is looking at his disciples and asks, who do people say that I am? And they reply. And they told him, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others say one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? And Peter answered him, you are the Christ. Jesus is the Christ, God's Messiah, the anointed one that people have been looking for since Genesis 3. The one that they have waited for to fulfill God's age-old plan of redeeming a people for himself. But though he sees clearly to know that he is the Christ... Peter does not see fully. It's actually not until chapter 15. If you want, you can just go ahead and turn there now in your Bible. Near the conclusion of Mark part 3, that we find the confession, Jesus is the Son of God, on the lips of a centurion, a Gentile, at the foot of the cross. Chapter 15, verse 33. And when the sixth hour had come, there was darkness over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lemai sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And some of the bystanders hearing it said, behold, he is calling Elijah. And someone ran and filled a sponge with sour wine and put it on a reed and gave it to him to drink saying, wait, let us see whether Elijah will come to take him down. Notice how Mark has connected these two passages. They refer to him as Elijah in chapter 8. 
they think that he's bringing Elijah in chapter 15. And Jesus uttered a loud cry and breathed his last. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion who stood facing him saw that in this way he breathed his last, he said, truly, this man was the son of God. God's Christ is God's son. And in Mark's gospel, God's Christ is only seen as God's son when he dies on the cross for sinners. Friends, this is one of the reasons, believers, this is the reason why the gospel Our presentations of it must include the self-substitution of Jesus Christ on the cross. To think of Jesus as Savior apart from his work on the cross is to think of Jesus wrongly. The only way to communicate clearly God's love for sinful people is to communicate directly and forcefully Jesus' work on the cross for them. His bloody work on the cross is the way that he redeems ruined people. And any gospel presentation that does not include it is an incomplete gospel presentation. This is how God communicates his love for his people. It's how he shows us his love displayed, not just in word, but in act on the cross. This is the realization that led Paul to say things like, For I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. Brothers and sisters who are members of this church, I wonder if that characterizes your life, that type of resolve. I desire to know nothing except Jesus Christ and Him crucified. To be pressed ever deeper into the mysteries of Jesus Christ and Him crucified for His people. Mark tells us that Jesus is the Christ, that Jesus is the Son of God, and that means that this Jesus has authority. All across the first section of his gospel, he's telling us of the type of authority that Jesus has. He has authority over nature, chapter 4, verses 35 through 41. He has authority over demons, chapter 5, verses 1 through 20. He has authority over disease, chapter 5, verses 24 through 34. He has authority over death, chapter 5, verses 35 through 43. But most importantly, he has the authority to forgive sins. Turn with me to chapter 2. Mark chapter 2. We find yet another important truth that Mark has fronted at the very beginning of the gospel. Chapter 2, verse 1. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that He was at home, and many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now, some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, why do you question these things in your hearts? Which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say... Rise, take up your bed and walk. 
but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. The Christ, the Son of God, is the Messianic Son of Man, who has the authority to forgive sins in Mark's gospel. Friends, he can forgive you your sins today, right now, right here in the service of corporate worship. We say that all the time to non-Christians because it's true, and it is. If you are not a believer, we invite you to believe the gospel today. Jesus Christ will forgive you of your sins. If you acknowledge that you're a sinner and that you have sin that has separated you from God, and you repent of that sin and trust in Jesus Christ, he will forgive you of your sins. He will never cast out the repentant person. We say that to unbelievers because it is true. But Christian, I wonder, do you hear those words as words for you today? He can forgive you of your sins today. Right here, right now, in this service of corporate worship. Perhaps you're here and you think, Jesus can forgive me of my sins, but I'm actually worried that Jesus won't be willing to forgive me of my sins in light of all that I've done, or in light of what I've done in particular. We find ourselves often in situations where we think that we have sinned ourselves out of the grace of God. Anybody who's been a believer here for any length of time has certainly felt that. Which is often why we are so ashamed of our sin and so slow and sluggish to share it with other people. Shame is the experience of feeling unacceptable. And by God's grace, we have been given books like Mark's Gospel and introduced to, quote, many unacceptable people filled with shame, who because of their relationship with Jesus, become heroes in the faith. The demoniac, overrun by demons, ruining his life, becomes a herald of the gospel in Mark's gospel. The woman with a shameful discharge of blood, who has been alienated and ostracized from people, separated from all meaningful community is one of the examples of genuine faith coming to Jesus despite all of the shame that she's experienced. The Syrophoenician woman who's not even counted among God's people. She's a Gentile, a foreigner, somebody who is unclean and far from God, dares to approach Jesus and shows us what it's like to believe in God's promises. The Apostle Peter, a great and mighty spokesperson who was supposed to be mighty in the faith, and used in a way that was to be an example for all, fails miserably, and by God's grace is restored by the end of the gospel. Believer, the entire story of shame turns when we see Jesus clearly. He is the one who takes away our shame and gives us his reputation. Psalm 34, verse 5. Those who look to him are radiant, their faces shall never be ashamed. 
You might be ashamed right now because of your sin. And on one level, we would say that that's a good thing. Your sin should shame you. You should be ashamed of it. Your sin is horrible. It is a terrible offense. But the reality is the good news of the gospel for the unbeliever and for the believer is that God forgives the repentant person and he turns that shame upside down and welcomes those people to his, himself and he will never cast them out. Believer, come afresh to the Savior who loved you enough to die for you and loves you still to forgive you of your sin right now. He will cleanse you. He loves you. The Bible is a Christian book written for Christian people, but Christians often read the Bible as if there are parts of it that are exclusively for non-Christian people and have no relevance to the Christian life. The commands to repent and the exhortations to receive forgiveness are not exclusively for the unbeliever. First John 1 John 1.9 is not primarily or solely about how to get unconverted people converted. It's written to believers. If anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Brothers and sisters, these commands and these exhortations are for you. All of Mark's gospel is for you, teaching you how to live the Christian life. We don't just need certain parts for the unbeliever and certain parts for the believer. We need all of it for the entirety of our Christian life so that we might be driven into deeper repentance and deeper faith. So that we might be able, like David, to ask with confidence, have mercy on me, O God. What gives the believer that confidence? The belief that we will never be turned away when we come to our Father. The belief that when we come to Him, He will meet us with forgiveness. The belief that when we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to cleanse us of all unrighteousness. The belief that he actually will give us the strength to put sin to death and fight that sin and live to righteousness. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. How dare David, after what he did, what a daring example by David after what he did. Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, the herald of God's kingdom, the forgiver of sins who takes away our shame. Second, what does Jesus expect of those who follow him? Mark part 2 begins with the famous cost of discipleship. Turn with me to chapter 8, verse 34. And Mark part 2 Chapter 8, verse 34, we have the very familiar summons. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and for the gospels will save it. The call of discipleship is proclaimed to everyone, anyone, whoever, and it demands everything from everyone. Fellow believer, what are you holding back today? What are you refusing to give to God? What are you holding back from Jesus Christ? 
One of the things that I've learned about myself over the course of my own Christian journey is that there are some things that I'm very comfortable with surrendering to Jesus as one of his disciples. And there are other things that I hold on to in the hopes that they will go unnoticed. And as pastor of this church, I've been here long enough to know that that's true for all of you as well. But the end of our time in Mark's gospel, I'm concerned that we might think of Jesus' call to discipleship as merely a denial of creature comforts, like money and time. So we read the passage something like this. Since some of us are very comfortable giving freely of our time to serve kingdom purposes, as long as we're not asked to give our money, and while others of us would rather give our money so as to save ourselves the time, we each need to figure out which one we struggle with and then teach ourselves to either give more money or more time. And though it may be true that some of us are stingy and need to give more money, and that some of us are selfish and need to give more freely of our time, I think that it is not the primary summons of Jesus' famous call to discipleship. Because as Tim Keller has noted, it is quite possible to do all sorts of morally virtuous things when our hearts are filled with fear and with pride and with the desire for power. So I want to read this famous call to you one more time, and let's see if we can explain it again. Look at verse 34 with me again. If anyone would come after me, let him deny himself. Underline that. Deny himself. And take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What Jesus expects of those who follow him is self-denial. Self-denial is what Jesus is calling his disciples to throughout the discipleship section of Mark's gospel. Chapter 8, verse 31 through chapter 10, verse 52. Because only those who deny themselves will go all the way to the cross. But what we see in the discipleship section is that the disciples don't get it. Which is why we find them arguing with one another about who is the greatest. Or trying to stop somebody who's actually doing miraculous things in Jesus' name. Or rebuking children who are trying to come close to Jesus. Or asking Jesus if they will be given the special privilege to sit at his right hand and his left hand in glory. His disciples don't get it at all, do they? It is the reason that they betray him for money. And run for fear of their lives. And deny him before a servant girl. Self-denial is the call of discipleship. And only those who deny themselves will go all the way to the cross. And in Mark's gospel, the only person who makes it there is Jesus. Which is why Jesus' life becomes the example for how we are to live. 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 21. For to this you have been called, because Christ also suffered for you leaving you an example so that you might follow in his steps. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued to entrust himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. 
Jesus' self-denial is the standard by which we should evaluate our own self-denial in our lives. Which is why Paul says this in Philippians chapter 2. Turn there with me now. Philippians chapter 2. Very famous section of Paul's writing. Speaking of the cross. Says this. Philippians chapter 2 verse 3. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit. But in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Well why would we do that? Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interest of others. Well, why would we care to do that? Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Now, you notice what Paul's done there is he's showed us all of the ways that Jesus has denied himself. He humbled himself. He took the form of a servant. He lived a condescended life. He died on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and has bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus... Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Brothers and sisters, only by evaluating ourselves, our thoughts, our words, our actions, our deeds, in light of Jesus' cross, will we ever come to realize that the problem is not something outside of us. The problem is us. And only when we see that the problem is us, not someone else in the world or some other institution of the world or something that we have not been given or something that we wish that we had, will we ever begin to look to the cross both for forgiveness from sin and help to live the Christian life. Have you ever stopped to think that the cross is not simply uh, simply or merely something for you to receive forgiveness of sin? It is the standard by which you are to live your life. The cross teaches you how to forgive other people. From the cross, Jesus says, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. The cross teaches us how to live as men and women, as husbands and wives, as parents and children, as employers and employees. The cross teaches us how to hold our tongue when we are mistreated and reviled and slandered and misrepresented. The cross teaches us that even in death, we can do something for God's glory. The cross is the place that we receive forgiveness from sin And it is the place that we go to understand the pattern of discipleship. The cross-centered life. It's why we sing about it. It's why we read about it. It's why books have been written about it. So that we might press ever deeper into the cross. But we become so familiar with the cross. That we think that it's just a place where we receive forgiveness. And we go somewhere else to understand how to live the Christian life. But what the apostles do is say, no, look back to the cross. And who was the one on the cross? Jesus, the Christ of God. Look to his life. Pay attention to him. Don't go to the Gospels to learn how to be saved and the epistles to learn how to live. 
Go to the Gospels to learn how to be saved and how to live. Jesus is the paradigm for all of the Christian life. This is why Jesus is constantly foretelling his death and resurrection over and over again in the discipleship section of of this gospel. Look in chapter 8, verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again from the dead. Chapter 9, verse 31 For he was teaching his disciples, saying to them that the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of sinful men and that they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise again. Chapter 10, verse 33. See, we are going up to Jerusalem and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days he will rise. Fellow believers, are you looking to the cross for forgiveness and for the pattern of discipleship in your life? Jesus is the Christ of God, who is the Son of God, the herald of God's kingdom, the one who forgives sins, who takes away our shame and calls us to self-denial. I wonder if that's what characterizes our life. Or if the people who know you best and love you most would say that what actually characterizes your life is a pattern of self-denial. Or if we've ever stopped to think of all of the commands in the epistles that point us back to think of Jesus' self-denial. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church. And how did he do that? By denying himself. Wives, be submissive to your own husbands. What is the pattern that Paul points to? Back to the cross of Christ. When he speaks of children obeying their parents and everything, what is the example? Jesus Christ following the commands of his Father. All of these commands are pointing us back to the cross. Who is Jesus? What does he expect of those who follow him? Third, why did Jesus have to die? If you were an I became convinced that we were God. I am quite sure that the very first thing that we would think would not be, therefore I must suffer. It would probably be something like, therefore people must finally do what I say. But at the time that Jesus called his disciples to to him, at the time he's calling them to self-denial, he also taught them that that he must suffer. When the disciples became excited about the transfiguration, Jesus told them that the Son of Man must suffer and be rejected in chapter 9, verse 12. When Judas dipped his hand in the bowl during the Last Supper, Jesus said the Son of Man would go as it is written of him, to suffer. When later that night, Judas led an armed group of people to Jesus to betray him in front of all of his disciples, Jesus told the disciples that the Son of Man was to be betrayed into the hands of sinners. Why did Jesus have to suffer? Look in chapter 10, verse 45. The central verse of Mark's gospel, even though it's not the very center verse. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Right before Jesus enters Jerusalem for the final week of his life, before he lives his last week 
of his earthly ministry, he told his disciples why he had to die, to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus is the one that Isaiah prophesied about in Isaiah 53. By oppression and judgment, he was taken away. And as for his generation who considered that he was cut off out of the land of the living, stricken for the transgression of my people, and they made his grave to be with the wicked and with the rich man in his death, although he had done no violence. And there was no deceit in his mouth, yet it was the will of the Lord to crush him. He has put him to grief. When his soul makes an offering for guilt, he shall see his offspring. He shall prolong his days. The will of the Lord shall prosper in his hand. Out of the anguish of his soul, he shall see and be satisfied. By his knowledge shall the righteous one, my servant, make many to be accounted righteous, and he shall bear their iniquities. The one who would be pierced for your transgressions and crushed for your iniquities, the one who would bring you peace and healing by his wounds, is the one who came to give his life as a ransom for his people. Jesus knew Isaiah 53, and he knew that it was about him. He knew that he was God in the flesh, and that people would reject him and give him over, and that they would turn him over to be, uh, be murdered on the cross, as he is calling them to repent and to believe. He died. He came. He suffered so that they might hear that call and so that you might repent and believe. The question that confronts us in Mark's gospel is, Will you believe him today? Brothers and sisters, it's not lost in me that so often when we gather here that it is very possible for people to think themselves a Christian and not really be a Christian. To think that because they have been able to hear the Bible preached regularly or have read through it frequently in their life or perhaps have told somebody else that they're a Christian or maybe are even a member at this church or have been baptized at some other congregation, that that is what makes them a Christian. But Mark's gospel confronts us and says, that is not what makes somebody a Christian at all. What makes someone a Christian is when they finally realize that Jesus Christ was right about them. That they are sinners separated from God. That their sin is what demands their repentance. And it is only by their repentance that they'll be able to approach Jesus Christ by faith. And that when they come to him by faith and with belief, belief in who he said that he was, believing all that he said, about himself, everything that he has revealed about himself in the scripture, that they can be his people. You cannot choose to believe certain parts of Mark's gospel or certain things about Jesus, the things that are accommodating and disregard the rest, that you can accept some of the commands and jettison the ones that are hard or uncomfortable, that you can share the parts of the gospel that people would like to hear and not share the parts that people are offended by. We must receive the whole Christ, everything that is revealed about him in the Scripture, and proclaim the whole Christ to people so that they might know the truth about who he is and what he has done for them. Does that characterize your belief today? Brothers and sisters, if it doesn't, repent and trust in this Christ. Why did Jesus have to die? So that sinners might be confronted with their true identity and be offered forgiveness through his work on the cross. It is only in light of what Jesus came to do that the Lord's Supper has any significance and meaning for us here as we gather together. But it is important for us to see 
that Jesus did not come to collect a bunch of individual Christians who would separate themselves from one another. Jesus Christ came for a people. Each one of you must individually place your faith in Jesus Christ. But Jesus Christ did not save you so that you might live your life by yourself unto yourself. Jesus Christ came to die for his people to make them a part of his church. And how do we know that they are a part of his invisible church? By their presence in the visible church. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not love Jesus' church. There is no such thing as a Christian who does not go to church. Christians go to church because they love the one on who the church is built, Jesus Christ, her Lord. And it is the reason that we invite you into membership in the church, because you are not primarily responsible for your own discipleship. You have wrecked your own life time and again. You have ruined your opportunity to steward it yourself. You are incapable of seeing your sin clearly. You are not able in any way to teach yourself how to not sin. God gives you the gospel of Jesus Christ in the context of the church so that people who will tell you what you don't want to hear might call you continually to repentance and faith. If you refuse to join a church, brothers and sisters, we'd ask you to reconsider today. Join a church. Join this church. We'd love to have you here. We are a messed up group of people who love the Lord. But we would love to have more messed up people with us trying to love the Lord and helping us see our sin more clearly. And if you are here today and you're a member of this church and you're hiding from the other members of this church, this is a call to repent. What does it mean to be a member of a church if you won't even tell the other members of the church what you're struggling with? In what sense is membership meaningful if we're hiding from one another? In what sense is it useful if we refuse to employ each other's care in our own lives? Does that require vulnerability? Yes. Have people hurt you in the past? Absolutely. Does that mean that some people are trustworthy? It does. Not everybody needs all of your information. But does it mean that God has placed you in the church so that people would be there to help you and care for you? Absolutely. This past week, Adam Tardosky called me from Kentucky after hearing about Boyd. And he said, what a sad story. He's all alone. And I said, no, he's not. A 20-something-year-old man living in Kentucky called about an 82-year-old man that he's not related to. Boyd Davis is not alone. God has placed him in the church. One of our life group leaders told me that people could not get through prayer without crying and praying for that man. What God has done for Boyd, he has done for every member of this church. He has not left you alone. Your presence here today, and if you're a member of this church, your membership in this body is proof that you're not alone and that God loves you. He has given you his friends as your friends so that on that day when it is hard and you might otherwise be alone like Boyd would have been, had God not intervened in his life, people would step in and seek to serve and to pray and to care and to clean and to minister and to call, to bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. Why did Jesus have to die? To save you from your sin and to build his church. And it is only when we begin to see that, that the Lord's Supper has any meaning for us as a congregation. 
The Lord's Supper is not your personal experience where you feel bad for your sins in your life and apologize to Jesus. It is a gathering of people who come together for a meal and confess their true identity. We are sinners, all of us. His body has been broken for us. His blood has been shed for us. He has redeemed us. And we need that sacrifice to be at the front of our minds so that we might learn how to live life together. Okay, The days are dark and evil and hard. Brothers and sisters, it is not getting any easier to live the Christian life. But because of the gospel, we have hope in the midst of it. The church will never fail. That's the talking point for everything that you hear. The church of the Lord Jesus Christ will never fail. And that is what Mark's gospel is teaching us. Who he is. Why he came to die. What he is building by his death on the cross. And it is what gives us hope as we approach the table this morning. I wonder if you noticed it in our own liturgy today. There's a reason that we read the text of Scripture that we do. We don't just open the Bible and point to a text and say that's the one Dan fitted in the program. Leviticus chapter 9 going into chapter 10. Notice all of the bloody things that they had to do to approach God so that if you just read the chapter again when you go home today, so that God would appear to them. And then in chapter 10, notice what happens of Leviticus, that people approach God wrongly and they're put to death. And then in Hebrews... The verses that Mark read for us, that that is no longer how we approach God, that we come to him through the torn flesh and the spilled blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. Old covenant worship is gone. New covenant worship is here. We can approach him through his sacrifice and have hope of a new world. Mark chapter 13, because these old ways have been overturned. Mark chapter 11, 12, and 14, because he has fulfilled all of the types and uh, shadows. Mark chapter 15, and has been raised from the dead. Mark chapter 16, 1 through 8. That is what Jesus has done for us. So we can say, Our Savior Christ, on the night before he suffered, instituted the sacrament of his body and blood as a sign. Friends, it's not just a symbol. It is a symbol, but it is a sign pointing us backwards to what God will never do again. He will never judge sin for his people again. It has been accomplished at the cross, and it is a sign that points us forward to where we are going the marriage supper of the Lamb. We too will be raised. We will be with Him forever. It points us back and it points us forward as it symbolizes for us what Jesus has done on the cross. That's why these are such holy mysteries. Having this mind among ourselves and because of His great love for us and obedience to His righteous commands, we offer to God praise and thanks Because of what he has done for all of us as his people. But if we're going to share rightly in that, we have to take seriously what he has said about it in his word. That we're to examine ourselves. If you're a believer and you are planning to approach the table today, I just need you to ask yourself right now. Is there unrepented sin in my life? Sin that I have not repented of or I'm refusing to repent of. Sins of bitterness. Anger, 
unforgiveness, lust, hatred. Friends, sins like these and so many other, lies, deceits, slander, misrepresentations. If they're there in your life, the most godly thing that you can do today is not approach the Lord's table. Paul tells us that on account of these, some have become sick and some have even died. Sin is a very serious thing. We should never approach the Lord's table flippantly. But if we see that, and we see ourselves trying to repent, appealing to the Lord to help us in our sinfulness, brothers and sisters, come as weak and wounded people on the journey to the celestial city this morning and enjoy this sacrament together, the bread and the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, because the benefit is great. It is great for all those who approach him with penitent hearts. And then finally, I just want to say, we have to think seriously about our relationship with one another. I want to read something for you from Mark, Matthew's gospel of what Jesus says about forgiveness of sins. We live in an age of unforgiveness. Jesus says this, For if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Friend, do you have unforgiveness in your heart toward another friend right now? Husband to the wife? Wife to the husband? Member to another member? Brother to sister? Sister to brother? Or brother to brother and sister to sister? Is there unforgiveness or hatred in your heart? If it is there and you are saying, I am unwilling to forgive, then it is questionable whether you actually understand the forgiveness of God from the cross. That he is forgiven so greatly and so freely, so magnificently, people who have otherwise hated them with their lives. But if you hear the words of love, if you confess your sins, he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. Approach the table boldly today. If you've repented of your sins and believed the gospel, if you've been baptized, if you are in good standing of an evangelical church that preaches the same gospel that this church preaches, then we invite you to the Lord's Supper. If you're joining us online, we don't think that you can take the Lord's Supper at home. We're so glad that you've joined us. We just ask that at this point you observe us taking it. Because the Lord's Supper is not something that can be administered privately. It happens when the congregation is gathered together corporately. I'm going to ask you to stand, I'm going to pray, we're going to sing, and then in a moment we'll take the elements together. Father, we thank you for this glorious gospel, the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. We ask that you would help us this morning and help our unbelief. Father, we pray in these, these moments as we sing, as we observe the Lord's table as we approach you now, that you would make us mindful of our sinfulness and perhaps bring to our minds some of the sins in our lives that we need to repent of. Father, we thank you for the torn flesh and the shed blood of our Lord Jesus Christ, the one who was pierced for our transgressions. Father, the one who has given us peace by his blood on the cross, the one who gives us rest by his work, Lord, we ask that we would think much of him right now in these moments. We ask all of this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen.